0: If you're not ready to change gear neurologically, this podcast is not for you. These particularly challenging times can actually be seen as a life-giving opportunity for expansion, disguised as an impossible situation. As we grow into our own wholeness through this global great awakening, we are more aware than ever that we are all one. Join with us to raise the collective consciousness, whole and one. You've got this. Here's your host, Sheila E. Hirein.
1: Dr. Martini, you are so welcome to the show. It's an honor and a pleasure to finally chat with you. Thank you so much for joining me.
0: Well,
2: thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Dr. Martini. before we begin chatting about values, obviously, uh, prioritizing values, um, your signature value determination process, and of course, the seven steps to the bounce back program that you teach, I wonder, would you introduce us to young John, John before he was Dr. Martini.
2: <laughs> okay. I, um, I was born in 1954 in Houston, Texas. The positioning I had in the in the womb was apparently awkward, because when I came out, I had a arm and turn arm and leg turned inward. And so when I was about when I tried to stand up, I just didn't do so well in the standing. And so I had to wear braces on my arm and leg on the left side. <clears throat> and when you're wearing clunky braces, they go up to your knees and to your elbow. You know, kids around you just don't quite understand that. I also had speech challenges and I'd go to speech pathologists and they put strings and buttons in my mouth and I would do these exercises. I remember, when I was four, I got out of the braces and all I wanted to do is run. I used to say to my dad, I just want to run and race. And he said, well, if you keep your legs straight and arms straight, then fine. If not, I have to put you back in the braces. So I made sure my arm and leg was straight so I could run. And I became kind of a runner just to run. When I got to elementary school um, in first grade, they were trying to teach us how to read. And for some reason, I was not getting it. No matter what I did, I just didn't quite grasp any meaning. Couldn't pronounce the words properly. Couldn't spell properly. And I ended up went from normal reading to remedial reading to wearing a dunce cap. They wore a dunce cap back then. Me and Daryl Dalrymple had to stare out the window until we decided to read. Finally, my teacher asked my parents to come to the class and said, you know, I'm afraid your son's not going to be able to read or write very effectively. I don't think he's going to learn. I don't think he's going <clears> to <throat> go very far or amount too much, but he likes to run. So maybe you can put him into sports. Maybe he can somehow get, his self-esteem that way or something. I did make it through elementary school to some degree by asking smart kids what they got out of the class. If I heard somebody say something, I could retain some of that, but writing and reading just wasn't working. When I turned 12, my parents had moved from Houston, Texas to Richmond, Texas, to a low socioeconomic area. And there were no smart kids to ask questions to. So I ended up failing and um, I started being a street kid. So I left home at 13 and lived in a bowling alley. There was a 24 hour bowling, alley. lived in a, uh, a diner, lived in a park, lived in cars, friends' houses, things like that. At 14, I hitchhiked out to California because there was one thing that I was able to do and that was stand up on a surfboard I had picked up surfing when I was nine, but Texas was not the surf capital. So I had a dream to go to California and Hawaii to surf because sport was the only thing that I could get some sort of acknowledgement out of. So I hitchhiked out to California, hitchhiked down into Mexico when I was 14. At 15, I panhandled enough money at the beaches in Huntington beach to fly to Hawaii. I first lived, under a bridge at Kamehameha Highway for sunset. And then I moved to an Ihekai beach park and lived under a park bench. Then I lived in a park bathroom and then an abandoned car and finally a a little tent. And I was a surfer and I lived surfing. Uh, I was actually good at it. Not the great, but good at it. And I rode progressively bigger waves. I got to be in the surf movie, a few of those, three of those, and then surf magazines and surf book, that kind of stuff. I turned 17 I was living there in Hawaii and I ended up almost dying and ended up in a unconscious for three and a half days. And I had had strychnine poisoning without realizing it. And in the recovery that lady found me in my tent luckily and helped me recover and took me to a health food store. At that health food store, I saw a little flyer of a speaker named Paul C. Bragg. Now I never went to classes. I never attended things, but something about this made me want to go. And so I attended this little class where this gentleman who was in his eighties began speaking to about 35 people sitting on a little wooden floor on mats and towels. And he said that we have a body, we have a mind and we have a soul. And the body must be directed by the mind, and the mind must be guided by the soul to maximize who we are. And that we are capable of doing incredible things and achieving whatever is in our heart. And we need to set goals for ourselves, our family, our community, our city, our state, our nation, our world, and beyond for 100, to 120 years. And that what you think about, what you visualize, what you affirm, what you feel, and what you say to yourself and what you take actions towards can become your reality. Nobody had ever talked to me like this. And that night he took us through this little guided imagery meditation experience at the end of his talk and made us close our eyes and see what we would love to dedicate our lives to. And I was not expecting it, but I saw a vision, a Lydian epiphany kind of vision, which is painted in my office today. Big, big, famous painting, famous painter painted it for me. And I saw myself speaking in front of a million people. And that was the first night I ever thought maybe I could overcome my learning problems and someday learn how to read and become intelligent. I never thought I was going to be intelligent until that night. And that night, something changed. And then I studied with this man every morning. I hitchhiked literally across the island just to go be with him each morning and learn everything I could from him. And then three weeks after learning from him, I, he gave me this little affirmation cause I told him I didn't know how to read. He said, say to yourself every single day that I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. He says, if you say that every single day, and never miss a day for the rest of your life, sooner or later, the cells of your body will tingle with it and so will the world. I've never missed a day since. And it's 48 and a half years. That made me want to go to a bookstore, a health food store and get a little health food book and try to learn to just pronounce and spell and read. Then in a meditation, which I started doing daily, it was time, my little meditation said, it's time to go home and see your parents. Cause I hadn't seen them since I was younger. So I went home and my parents taught me into taking a GED high school equivalency test, just in case I needed it for a job. And some miraculous thing happened. I passed. Now I didn't read it. I just closed my eyes said I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom and took a pencil and darkened in a little spot and somehow I hit the right ones. And now they said, well, why don't you take a college entrance exam? And I passed that the same way, guessing. I almost felt like there was something, a higher power working for my benefit because I just guessed. And I thought that that's somehow I'm being led. I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of a strange feeling. And then I tried to take a college class, two classes, English and history. And I, got the the results after six weeks. There's a six week summer school class and two weeks in I got this result from the first test and you had to have a 72 to pass, but I got a 27. When I got that result, I was so humiliated that I just ran to my car. I didn't want anybody to see me. I ran to the car. And all I could do is hear my first grade teacher talking. He'll never read. He'll never write. Da, da, da. And I drove home crying and I got home and I curled up under a, under a Bible stand that my mom had that had the Bible on it. And I curled up around it. And I really had a low moment trying to think, well, I thought I was going to go now try to be learn and teach, but maybe I better go back to surfing. And my mom came home from shopping and she saw me distraught there, laying on the floor. And she said, what on the hell happened? And I said, mom, I blew the test. I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess I'll never read, write, or communicate effectively, or go very far and mount anything. She just paused, didn't know what to say. And finally she put her hand on my shoulders. And she said what only a mother could probably say. She said, son, whether you become a great teacher, healer, philosopher, like you dream, whether you go back to Hawaii and ride giant waves like you've done, or return to the streets and panhandle as a bum. I just want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what. Now, when she said that, I needed to hear that. And when she said that my hand went into a fist and I looked up and I saw me standing in front of a million people, a vision. And I said to myself, I'm going to master this thing called reading, studying and learning. I'm going to master this thing called teaching and healing and philosophy. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to do whatever it takes and pay whatever price to give my services across this planet. I'm not going to let any human being on the face of the earth and not even myself stop me from this. I got up and I hugged my mom. I went into my room. I got a Funk and Wagnalls dictionary out. And I made a commitment to reading, studying, memorizing, and using in a sentence 30 new words a day. And my mom would make sure before I go to bed that I had completed that. So I had to pronounce the word, spell the word, use it in a sentence, explain its meaning. And we worked together 30 words a day. Well, you do that every day, your vocabulary starts to kick into gear. And I basically spent the day in a dictionary or an encyclopedia trying to grow my vocabulary so I could see a word, understand it, and try to get some meaning out of it. And I started passing. And really in a very short period of time, because you start adding up words month by month, your vocabulary gets pretty good. And I just wanted to catch up with everybody else. So I started to not only, pass, but I started to start to excel. I was more determined than any of the other students. They were trying to take it for granted, go to college, party a little bit. I just wanted to learn. So I spent 18 to 20 hours a day reading. When I turned almost 19, before my 19th birthday, I was born on Thanksgiving day. So it was a month before Christmas. About three weeks before my birthday, my mom said, what do you want for your birthday for Christmas? And I said, mom, I want the greatest writings and teachings on the face of the earth by the greatest minds who ever lived. She said, you sure you don't want a (laughs) t-shirt? I said, no mom, I just want the greatest things I could fill my mind with. Well, she had a, a, a brother, Uncle Ralph, and he was a professor at MIT at one time, and he was a physicist and chemist and he had access to some sort of library. And he sent two giant six by six by six foot wooden crates to our house, filled with thousands of books. And they were put on a flatbed truck on, onto the ground. And um, I went out with a crowbar and opened it all up and filled my room with books. There was just a little yoga mat in the center and books everywhere. And I just started reading and devouring books all day. And I would go to class, I'd read on the way to class, driving, I'd read on the way back. And I started excelling. By the time I, I started having students asking me questions and I started tutoring, I started speaking. By the time I went to the University of Houston, about the third year now, I used to gather hundred, 150, sometimes 400 people a day under the trees and did, presentations on whatever was inspiring to me and whatever questions I had. And so my teaching career started to grow. When I went on to professional school, I started teaching classes every night. I would speed read in the morning because I developed faster and faster reading by then. I speed read and then I would teach each night. And then I teach around the, the area of the neighborhood. Then when I graduated and I started my practice, I started doing television shows, radio shows, and teaching every night, literally six, seven nights a week. And then I started getting asked to speak at at conferences. And then those went from conferences local to conferences national to then international conferences. I just never gave up on the dream. And now I've had the opportunity to speak in 154 countries and speak on average 300 to 350 presentations a year for many, many, many years. So here I am 48 years later, um, told I would never read. Now I've read over 30,500 books. They said I'd never write. I've written over hundred books. Uh, they said I've never mount a thing. I'm very fortunate. Wealthy. Never go very far. I've traveled over 20 million miles. And um, never be able to communicate. we reached billions of people now with television, radio, newspapers, podcasts, 54 movies. So, When somebody has somebody tell them that they can't do something, that doesn't mean anything. It may be that what they say you can't do may be the thing you end up doing. So in my case, I'm very grateful for the journey. There's nothing I would, there's nothing to regret. Everything was exactly what I needed to do what I do today. And I'm very grateful for the challenges because if I hadn't had the challenges, I wouldn't have been driven. So that, you know, if there's anybody out there that, thinks that there's been challenges in their life, ask how specifically is it on the way, not in the way? Because anything you can't say thank you for is baggage. Anything you can say thank you for is fuel. And there's no reason not to. We have control of our perception, decisions, and actions. If we take our perceptions and ask how specifically are we, what's the upside, the benefits, of the things we think are challenges, we become fully conscious. And when they can use it, things as, as, a, as a driver to do something amazing and contribute to the planet. So that's my story. And, oh my uh, goodness. I love it. I love Dr. what I just
1: Martini, I love it too. Thank you so much for sharing. That is so emancipating for so many others um, just to know. That there were so many apparent obstacles, but you didn't see them as obstacles. You allowed them to, they were like stepping stones towards where you were going and, and you hopped light of foot from stone to stone to become this wonderful worldwide global concept brand change maker. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I'm intrigued at the um, the period of time that you spent out of home in your young teens. And I wondered where that story was going to go. I was delighted to hear then that you went back to your parents quite seamlessly. And they're a very important part then of that threshold from before into this new learning period in your life. Can you share with us how that happened or why you left home at that young age?
2: <laughs> I don't know if it's appropriate. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> the reason I left home, uh, I was having problems in school, as, as I said, but the reason I left home was a, a serendipitous event. There was a very attractive girl at school that I fancied. And I'm 13. And um, a best friend of mine had his parents go out of town. And so he, was going to use that house to bring his girlfriend over and she was friends with the girlfriend I had. And so we had plans. Now we were probably going to kiss and make out and that kind of stuff. You know how it is when you're 13. And, um, but I didn't want to tell my dad that that was just, that's just not something I wanted to tell him that by the way, I'm going to go and kiss this girl. So I told him that I need to get cleaned up. We were playing pool in a barn at my parents' house. They had a barn with a pool table, and we were playing pool. And I said, "Well, I need to go in and get cleaned up, and I'm going into town." And he says, "Well, no, you've been in town plenty of this week. You need to stay home tonight." I said, "Well, no, I've I've got plans. I'm, you know, I'm going into town. I didn't want to tell him what. I just said, I've got plans." Well, no, you need to stay home. We had a bit of a. It was not big. It's just a difference of opinion. And he said, well, if you, I said, well, I'm no, I'm going into town. I'm not, I am not going to, the, the girl made me stand up to my dad. Right. Cause I wasn't going to pass that up. I wasn't going to look like this, uh, that my dad said, I can't come and kiss you. <clears throat> so I uh, told my dad, I'm going to town. I stood up to him. He said, well, if you go into town, if you leave tonight, you go to town, you don't come back. It's just his way of trying to say, you know, yeah, I don't really think he won." get me to leave. You just tried a strategy. I said, okay. So I packed up my little bag, you know, duffel bag and I took off. And, and my mom was saying, are you sure you want to make him go out tonight like that? And, and sure you don't let him go and just let him come back. You know, they had a little bit, not a fight, but just a little bit of difference of them and things. And he said, no, if he thinks he's a man enough to stand up, he's, he's a man enough to take care of himself. And he said. He says, I've done because he knew that I had learning problems. So he did what I could, what he could to make me more entrepreneurial at a young age. I and mean, he made me pay for rent, clothing, and food when I was nine, to know how to manage money, because he said, you know, you got to learn how to be in the real world. So he kind of prepared me a lot for being independent for my age, street smart, not academic smart. And kind of taught me, you know, because I, I used to go around the neighborhood and, and mow lawns and, and he charged me for the equipment. And I mean, he was, it was a real business and I got kids in the neighborhood working for me. I had a a good little thing going. So he, um, I think he was just seeing if I was strong enough to stand on my own two feet and and why not? You know, at one time kids did at young ages, it's just now it's not to the 30 almost, but at one time they did. So I went out and I decided I was not going to come back and I tried to figure out how to, how to do that. And I remember sleeping sometimes with my head on a, on a table in a diner that was all 24 hour diner, or I went to this all night bowling alley. That was a, you could have a place in the back that was quiet. You could, they wouldn't, they wouldn't kick you out of this place. So I, I stayed at friend's house. I did whatever I could to just things. And I did odd jobs to to make money to get some food. And know I became, you know, somewhat savvy and uh, Became somewhat independent at a young age. It wasn't because of any anger to my parents, or that we didn't hate each other. We, it was just one of those little fluky things. But I didn't want to pass up that night. That's it. So that's how I left home. But okay. then I stayed out because I took him for what his word was. He, he, and there was a part of him I think that was, you know, honored it. He didn't. He didn't uh, rescue me. We didn't have cell phones in those days. I think I eventually moved to the beach and did surfing uh, when I was 13. So I didn't remember him coming, trying to look for me on the beach one time, trying to find out if I'm okay. And uh, just, but by the time I tried to get it, ran towards him, he had taken off. So that was the reason why I started on the journey. But once I got there, I, I, it was challenging on the streets, but it was also invigorating and adventure. I learned a lot of interesting things, met a lot of interesting people. and. And then when I hitchhiked to California, I had amazing adventures. I got to meet Howard Hughes when I was 14 years old, amazing. and he, he took me to a library and, and gave me some amazing advice, which is still impacting my life today. And uh, yeah, I had I had some interesting adventures hitchhiking in Mexico, almost getting stabbed, and uh, you know almost dying there, and almost being eaten by sharks. I mean, I've had some interesting adventures, but none of those adventures are anything but exactly what I needed for the next step. So I'm very grateful for all those adventures. I look back now and there's nothing there that I would hide. There's nothing I need to feel guilty about or nothing I need to be frightened of or anything that I feel hurt by. They're just experiences because every experience has two sides. And you can make a heaven out of a hell or a hell out of heaven like Milton said.
1: Absolutely.
2: if If you choose to see the side that helps you get what you want in life, nothing becomes baggage. Otherwise, it becomes baggage. You become a victim of history instead of a master of destiny if you don't ask the right questions in life.
1: Absolutely. How enlightening. How enlightening. And so clearly, you don't believe in villain and victim theory. This is very much um, the epicenter of your, your policy around perception, decision, and action. So it was how you chose to perceive that informed the awakening that you allowed it to be.
2: Yeah. Well, as I said, we have, we have the ability to transform our perceptions, decisions, and actions. I'm amazed how many people have an event that they think is terrible. And then a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, they look back and go, Oh, I'm so grateful that that happened now. But why have the wisdom of the ages with the aging process when you can have the wisdom of the ages without it? Why wait five years to discover the benefits? Why not just look? And if you look, they're always there. It's just, you're just choosing not to look. The wounds, when we perceive a highly polarized, you know, event that we think is terrible, that's because of a subjective bias. That's not because of what's objectively there. It's just, we're choosing to see the downsides, not the upsides, the negatives, not the positives. And also on the other side of the equation, if we get enamored and infatuated and fantasizing about something, and you know, we might meet somebody like that girl that night, I, I was, I obviously was willing to endure, you know, being kicked out of the house to meet her because I had a fantasy about her. Now she didn't turn out to be what I thought. That was a fantasy. And the fantasies and the nightmares are subjective biases of incomplete awareness. When you infatuate things, you're conscious of the upsides, unconscious of the downsides. When you're resentful to things, you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upsides. But when you become fully conscious, you see both sides. And you don't get swayed by your amygdala with impulses or instincts, seeking and avoiding and distracting you from being present and poised and purposeful. So I'm a full believer that whatever we see, if we see something we're infatuated with, what are the downsides? And if we see something we're resentful to, what are the upsides? And level the playing field because when we see both sides, we're mindful and we're centered and we're poised and we have self-governance and then we act wisely instead of react foolishly from an external source of perception, that's not even real. It's only a a subjective bias. So I'm a firm believer in asking quality questions that equilibrate the mind and liberate the mind from the emotional bondage of these subjective biases. So if we take the time and ask, so what are the upsides? I had a, a lady that uh, her mother left her when she was young and she was around nine. And the aunt, the sister, the grandmother, and their cahoots with the teacher kind of helped raise this girl. And the stepfather was gone, the mother was gone. So an uncle came in, a grandfather came in, and again, a male uh, teacher. So she had a surrogate form of family, But because she was infatuated with a fantasy about how her mother was supposed to be, she was not looking at the gifts she was given by these new people. And all I asked her, I said, what did you think you missed? Well, I missed an affectionate mother. She wasn't there. I said, and so what did you think you missed and who provided it? And then we found out who provided it because it wasn't missing. It was just provided by other people. What was the benefit of them providing it? And all of a sudden she got tears eyes. she goes, they were stable. And she says, my mother had bipolar condition. And then all of a sudden she had this realization. Are you sure your mother didn't love you enough to make sure you were taken care of because she couldn't? And the woman just start bawling. And she goes, you have been assuming and running a story that your mother abandoned you. You sure she didn't just love you because she felt unstable and she felt that you deserved a better life than what she could provide. Mothers don't do something unless they perceive there's going to be more advantage and disadvantage. And all of a sudden she stopped. And then she said, wow, that's exactly what my aunt told me. She said, my aunt said, the hardest thing that my mother ever did was to have to walk away from her daughter, because she did not want to raise her with such instability and craziness, she wanted to have a better life, and the family agreed to do that. Prior to that, she felt self-esteem down. She felt she was worthless. She would select the men that would treat her that way. You know, she just didn't drive herself an ambitious. Not worthy. All that. All of that perception. The moment she had that tear of gratitude and realized that and realized that she was special and their mother wanted to make sure she could do something more with her life, she felt she wanted to honor her mother and her life changed. And all of a sudden she started studying and she started writing and she started engaging and helping people. And she realized that that was a gift. She was a victim of history because of a misperception. And she became a master of destiny when she changed it. I love helping people see that other side because their lives change.
1: Absolutely.
2: Because the truth is, it's not what happens to you. it's How you perceive, decide and act from it. So I see that every week when I get to do my programs and work with people. And it's so refreshing and rewarding to know that you can ask people new sets of questions and make them aware of things they never saw before and make them fully conscious. And when they're really fully conscious, they become grateful for life. And why not? You know, why, why would you go through life comparing your reality to a fantasy about how it's supposed to be or how you wish it would be? The question you want to ask is how is what's happening right now? How is it helping me fulfill what I dream about, what I want to create? And then don't say, I don't know. I can't find it. It's not. You're not going to get anywhere that way. How specifically is it helping you? And if you dig, you'll discover it. And then all of a sudden you find out, wow, it's on the way, not in the way. There was always an opportunity sitting there. You just never took the time to open your eyes to it. Because you kept comparing your reality to a fantasy about how it was supposed to be. Instead of honoring the reality that you have. The COVID was a good example. When COVID hit, some people got resourceful and found out what the new needs of the society are, adapted, went out and served them and boomed in business. Other people sat and wallowed in their pity party and their trauma drama, their whole dumb doldrum. And they sat there and blamed the world around them. And they didn't get into action and expected life to be the way it used to be or the fantasy about how the hope it will be and wanting some extrinsic thing to take care of their life. And then they, you know, in bitching instead of enriching their lives. So I basically, you know, I asked on COVID days, A year ago in March, last year, I sent out a request to students around the world to please write down the blessings that are happening right now in their life. Made them look. 17,000 benefits and blessings came in. And uh, I started reading those out to people to make them look for things they couldn't see on their own. Here's some of the benefits. And as I was reading them, people were, having tears and go, wow. And they get these ideas of what they could do to become resourceful. And uh, once we see both sides, we become resourceful. As long as we get side swiped by one side, we, we get perturbed instead of, uh, you know, inspired. So it's not what happens to us. It's, it's what how we respond for
1: sure. It's how we respond to our environment, and Dr. De Martini, the wisdom in what you've suggested about healing relationships and not allowing the refractory period to continue for so long that it becomes your perceived reason not to grow and develop and expand in this universe. Can we take this opportunity together in this interview to put it out to the universe, that people need to take another, we welcome them to take another look at those fractured, broken relationships and see how in fact they are serving them and can serve them. And perhaps take a look at, um, you know, the fact that we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are from from our vantage point in any moment.
2: I learned a a very interesting question. Many years ago, I noticed that what I was saying to other people was really for me. Norm Chomsky said that uh, language was not just for other people communicating. It was also to listen to what you said, because part of it was for you. The finger pointing out is three fingers back kind of thing. So I decided that uh, instead of waiting for people to push my button, because I discovered that every button that people pushed, positively or negatively, were disowned parts of myself, things I were too, too humble or too proud to admit that I had Then I always say at the level of the essence of the soul, nothing's missing in us. The soul being the state of unconditional love, our real authentic, heartfelt state. And uh, But at the level of the existence of the senses, things appear to be missing in us. And that's only because we're judging other people and we're too proud or too humble to admit what we see in them inside ourselves. And we have a deflected awareness and it's keeping us in bondage to our misperceptions of others. So instead of waiting for people to push my buttons and then discover that those are disciplined parts, I decided to go to the dictionary, because I lived in the dictionary almost. I went through the Oxford Dictionary and I went and underlined every word that could describe a human behavior. I found 4,628 individual traits in the dictionary. And I kind of circled or underlined them. And then I thought, who do I know expresses that behavior the most? And I put their initial out to the side, And then I asked this question, okay, so what specific trait, action or inaction, do I perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating that I admire most or despise most that I've got on a pedestal or in a pit? that I look up to or down on, that I minimize myself to, or exaggerate myself to. And then I, get, then I went, now go to a moment, John, to myself, where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating that same or similar trait, action or inaction that you admired or despised in them. And where are you and when are you and who you demonstrating to and who's perceiving you that way. And do it until you're certain that you display it quantitatively, to the same degree as you perceive in the most extreme individual. So you, instead of you pointing your finger, you're plucking the mode out of your own eye before you pluck it out of somebody else's. And when I did that, I realized I had all 4,628 traits. This took months to do, but I had them all. I was nice, and mean and kind and cruel and honest and dishonest and, you know, stingy and generous and giving and taking and considerate and inconsiderate and, you know, loyal and betrayed. I mean, I, I did everything when I looked honest. There was nothing missing in me. I was hero, villain, saint, sinner, virtue and vice all in one. And when I realized that it, it humbled me because I had been hypocritically attempting to get rid of half of myself to be only one sided, only to find it was futile. And we are sometimes brainwashed into thinking we can do that, but that's not happening. And then we think there's nobody perfect, but maybe the perfection is having it all. I discovered the real perfection is honoring that you have all those things. We all want to be loved for who we are and who we are is all those things. You know, we're not one sided people because we have values. And when people support our values, we're pussycats. When people challenge our values, we're tigers. That's life. We can be kind and cruel. So when I finally realized that, then when I saw people, instead of me reacting, I reflected and I noticed, people were not able to hook me with traits that I admired or hook me with traits I despised and I was more poised and more understanding of them and I could love them for all of it. And that was a very powerful transformative state when I was about 30 years old, when I realized that, that, wow, whoever I see out there is a reflection of me. Absolutely. I'm projecting. And then I I realized that what I'm saying to them I need to hear. And For sometimes sure. we my, my biggest prejudice and my biggest bias and my biggest judgment is the thing I'm too proud or too humble to admit that I have, but I'm actually holding on to those delusions or wounds inside myself. So then I asked another question. Okay, John, go to a moment where and when you actually perceive these individuals displaying or demonstrating these specific traits, actions or inactions you admire and despise most. Go to the moment. Go into the moment of perception because in the moment of perception is where we split our conscious and unconsciousness. And that's where we actually start to dissociate from reality. And I went in that moment and I said, now in that moment, that thing you admire, what are the downsides to it? And the thing you despise, what are the upsides to it? And I held myself accountable to balance the equation like a scale. And I discovered that all traits, all traits have advantages and disadvantages. If we did not have advantages to traits that were supposedly negative traits, they would have gone extinct. There's no way it would be here on the planet. Anything that's not efficient according to Merperdeus's mathematics of least action goes extinct. So it must serve a purpose. My job is to be more aware, not narrow my mind, but become more aware and discover the magnificence of why that trait's necessary. And when I actually dug deeper and found out the benefits to me of the things I thought were terrible and the drawbacks I think are terrific, and saw both sides. I was able to love people.
1: Amazing, the push and the pull. There's a push and a pull with absolutely everything. So even within that, then Dr. T. Martini, we're conscious of the fact that self-doubt is, as you say, feedback. It's um, it's the two-sidedness again, isn't it?
2: Well, I think that our physiology. Every time we are perceiving things that we look up to with an impulse toward. Or look down on it with an instinct away, a prey predator response from our amygdala. We create autonomic uh, parasympathetic sympathetic responses. And those transmitters of those autonomics create epigenetic changes that affect the gene expression, that then create symptoms in our body to let us know that we have an imbalanced perspective on life. Now we're so used to getting rid of a symptom and take a pill to get rid of a symptom instead of understand what the symptom represents and use it as an educational feedback to guide our awareness back into balance and see wholeness. So I believe that our physiology is offering us feedback. Our intuition is attempting to make us conscious of the unconscious parts to bring it back into balance. And if we don't listen to our physiology, we don't listen to our psychology, our friends come in and do it. Because when we get cocky and self-righteous and and put ourselves up and puff ourselves up, they criticize us and bring us down. And we get down, they lift us up. So nature is trying to homeostate, bring us back into equilibrium, so we can be authentic. When we're puffed up, we're not authentic. When we're put down, we're not authentic. But we're centered, we're authentic. When our heart's open. So I think that the world around us is trying to get us into being authentic. Our physiology, psychology, sociology, and I believe even the events in our life, the tragic and comical events are actually the magnificent universe way to try to get you back into authenticity. And I really believe that everything that's going on in our life is attempting to get us into authenticity, but we haven't been awakened to how it's revealing it. And that's why it's all on the way, no matter what it is, not in the way. For sure. Because when you actually see life that way, you feel grateful for life. And when you do, gratitude is the key that opens up the gateway of the heart and love comes out. And love window washes the mind and brings inspiration to the mind and enthusiasm to the body and certainty and presence and all the transcendental feelings that allow you to magnetize people, places, things, ideas, and events in your life. So your innermost dominant thought becomes reality. So we're creators in a sense, co-creators of our world.
1: Nothing quite like co-creating with the universe. And so, Dr. Martini, as you suggest, genes are going on and off like Christmas tree lights in our head all the time. And it's how and it's our environment that calls on the gene. So in light of what you were saying about epigenetics, what's your position on chronic ailment and our mindset? And what effect can our changing our mindset have on our physical wellness?
2: Well, I could go for a couple of weeks on that one. I'm going to make a statement that's not probably going to be appreciated immediately. I wish I had the time to develop it, but I believe that many of the symptoms we have, physiological, psychological symptoms, are conscious or unconscious strategies. So I had a lady that was in Dublin at the Merriam hotel a block away from, that statue uh, of the guy, which is the the writer, uh, I think <clears throat> I'll blank out his name, but there's a statue parked right next to it. And um, <clears throat> she has claimed that she's lived in pain her whole life. She was 57 years old. She's lived in pain her whole life, and no matter what she's done, she's not been able to get rid of this pain. And um, So she comes into the lobby of the hotel and I sit there and it's a little bit noisy with people running around, but that was the only place we could do. And I asked her a simple question that nobody's asked her this question in all her life. So what's the benefit of the pain? And she looked at me, well, there's no benefit to the pain. I said, well, throughout the ages, some of the greatest minds explain like Anaxagoras, that pain and pleasure are inseparable. And they're simply perceptions that we have governance over. And she said, well, th- there's no benefit there. How, how, why would you ask me that? I said, just what's the benefit? I can't see. It. Uh, 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 you didn't look. If you told me you can't see it in one second after me asking you, you're not really trying to look. Look, what's been the benefit of the pain that you have? Because if you see the benefits of it, you're, Cortex can overrule the thalamus, which is the gate center for the pain. So, just what's the benefit? I have no idea. Look again. Okay. I have learned a lot about physiology, the body, met some amazing people trying to find a solution for my pain. Okay, great. Like, who? Who did you mean? Well, I'm meeting you for one. I said, okay, keep going. And then all of a sudden she goes, oh, the man I married, she just stopped. She goes, I would not have met him if I had not been in pain. Looking for a solution to pain is how I met him. She started just going, whoa. So the, one of the most important things of her life she was able to get by that. And she said, that's interesting. I never even put the two in together. What's another benefit of the, the pain? It made me select the career that allowed me to have flexibility. So if I needed to go home, I could, and to work from home at times. And is it something you actually did enjoy doing? She goes, yeah. And would you have had the courage to ask for that type of flexibility if it hadn't been for the pain? She goes, probably not. What's another benefit for the pain? And all of a sudden she just broke down and she said, whoa, when I was a child, my sister was gorgeous, was highly intelligent, was very much in sports and my parents constantly acknowledged her for excelling. And I was like the antiparticle. You know how families have, they have these antiparticles, different value systems. And the only way I could compete with her is to get hurt or be in pain. And that was my way of getting attention from my parents. And she looked at me and she says, is it even remotely possible that I've done that throughout my life? I said, you tell me. And she started trembling in her mouth and she faced the truth about her unconscious motives. I said, you found a strategy at a very young age that got you some of the things you wanted. And she looked at that and she goes, wow, I said, what's another benefit for the pain? Exactly that. I got people to do things for me that I didn't want to do. I met people that way. Wow. I got involved in a social group because of it. And we listed, it started when she hit this threshold where the benefits started percolating to the top and she started getting these unconscious motives conscious, they started coming up without me having to ask hardly. And she hit about 37 benefits in that time we sat. And she just kept getting tears in her eyes. And I said, just out of curiosity, right this minute, now that you're gaining this insight and realizing this was unconscious motives to some degree, because there's a the thing called glial pain. There's neurological pain, which when they have inflammation and ischemia and problems with the cells, it stimulates nociceptions and causes pain. They're real pain. You also have glial pain, chronic pain that has no inflammation anywhere. And that's what they call intentional pain. There's a motive. And this was an intentional pain. There's no injury. So when she got that and we hit the 37 things and she got tears, I asked her a simple question, by the way, what's the threshold of the pain right now? How, what's the, what's the pain that you're feeling right this minute? And she goes, I'm not even noticing it. I think the tears I've had, the the steam has somehow been released, but right now it's hardly anything I'm I'm not even paying attention to it. I said, Notice that when you were angry and frustrated because it's not, you're not getting rid of the pain, you had one sensitivity. And now that you're seeing what you're doing consciously and you're seeing the blessings on it, there's a different sensitivity. She goes, yeah. I said, I want you to know that you have control over this. I want you to know that it's instead of looking outside yourself, it may be time to look within and realize the power you have with inside to change your, your state. And she said, you know, the person that told me to meet with you, I asked him, well, what is he going to do different? And what is he, what's his specialty? He says, I don't know, but I just want you to meet with him because I have a feeling he's going to find something that you won't find somewhere else. And she said, now I know why they said, come here. But no one's asked me all my life. They've never asked this question. See, many people believe other people's story of their conscious awareness, excluding their unconscious awareness. And they run the story. And if you believe it and you allow the person to rant that story, they stay victims of their history. Okay. But if you ask them questions and reveal the unconscious to equilibrate that with the conscious, they get to a superconscious state. And they transcend a metadoxical, you know, metacognitive state to where they look down back at the life and they rise above the paradox and see something that's, you know, beyond it. And this lady, when she walked out, we gave each other a hug. And she says, I really needed to have that conversation. I think it just changed my life. I said, great. That's what our goal was. Absolutely. She said, Do you mind if I have your contact details? I'd like to keep in touch with you. I said, That's fine. So I did. I only heard from her one time, and it was a beautiful thank you letter because she said it's changed her level of pain, her perspective on life. She sees people differently and sees herself differently because of that small little interaction.
1: Absolutely, but it was so life-changing, and it allowed her then to engage her capacity for uh, neuroplasticity as well, so she can then literally change the shape of her brain by the way she changes her thinking over every, a period every, of time.
2: time. Every time you see both sides of things, you go to the forebrain, you're in your executive function, and every time you don't, you're in your amygdala, and if you develop the amygdala, you're, you're going to be like an animal, avoiding pain, seeking pleasure all your life. And that's futility. The Buddha says the desire for that, which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that, which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. So as long as you're trying to separate the inseparables, divide the indivisibles and try to get one sided life, you're going to suffer.
1: Absolutely. And your pain will always push you until your wisdom pulls you. So it is our job. We know that we have negative bias for a reason. It's there to facilitate our growth and our expansion and health and healing. And um, it's, it's, that is such a powerful story. When there is secondary gain, you can never get well because your unwellness serves your need at the time.
2: Can I share another one? Can I share another one? Oh, please do. Okay. So I'm in my office many years ago. <clears throat> And a lady gets wheeled in this African lady wheels in this lady with white hair. I'm going to say she's probably my age. I'm almost 67. So she's about that age. And she um, was wheeled in by this lovely African girl and she had diabetes and she had ulcers on her legs and she was going blind and she had accelerated diabetes, neuropathies, et cetera. And I had just helped an individual who was told that their legs were going to have to be amputated for a diabetes the year before this one case. And we saved his legs and actually got it back on track. He had to do some nutritional work. He had to do some exercise, change his perspective on life, but he did it. And he literally turned his body around. So I felt confident that if we, if she was willing to do the work, she was in a wheelchair, not because of her couldn't walk. It was just painful and better to have somebody else to push it. So I told her that if she would follow some instructions, nothing that's impossible to do, they could ch- turn her life around. And I really believed it and meant it. And I was willing to work with her and push that to the limit. And so I was kind of excited about telling her that let's, let's go, let's get this thing started. And when she came in there, she was solemn. And she said, Dr. Demartini, I believe what you say. And I said, okay, but I can't do it. I said, how come? And this is what she said. "She see You see that lady, lovely lady out there in the reception area? she has been with me for eight years. She's my closest confidant. She knows everything about me if I don't need her, I lose the most dearest friend of my life. I didn't come here to get well. I came here to continue to get coverage. And I said, so what you're saying is that the advantages of your progressive state still outweigh the disadvantages because it's giving you these benefits. She goes, yeah. I said, okay, I honor that. If that's your, at least you're conscious and you're honoring it and you're, you're being honest about it. So if you change your mind, I'm here. And she walked out kind of a little down because it was a tough decision. But unless a person perceives there's going to be more advantages and disadvantages, by doing the things that maximize their wellness, sometimes they perceive there's more advantages doing what they're doing with their illness. And the illness is a strategy for many cases.
1: Of course, of course. Every, every,
2: every decision we make is based on what we believe will give us more advantage and disadvantage. So anything we chronically do, most people go, oh, that's crazy. You can't say that they am you know, I really want to get well, I don't know. I sometimes find unconscious motives that are amazing. I watched a lady who's smothered her kids and by the time they were in their twenties, they moved as far away as they could. They literally moved to different countries because they didn't want to have to be around mama and she was smothering and emotional blackmail and guilt trips and you know, and the only, no matter what she did, they, Well, mom, I'm here. It's a lot of travel. I got the kids. I can't come. They just didn't want to come back. And so the only way she could get them to come back was to get seriously ill. So she got seriously ill. And when they thought that she might die, they came back. And so when they did, that's when I got an intervention. I got to be in on it. And we found out that that was the only thing, she admitted it. That's the only thing that got her kids back. It was the only strategy she could get to get the kids back. I watched a lady diagnosed with schizophrenic as a strategy to convince a father who is demanding that she become a medical doctor, because four generations of medical doctors in the family, and she didn't want to be a medical doctor. So she got a medical condition diagnosed to give her a way out. And we uncovered that in an intervention and saw that she used it as a strategy to do it. And I have seen that in so many cases, it's, it deserves to be published because it's just there. Absolutely. So I'm a, a, I mean, you know, you work with people, you know that there's sometimes unconscious motives.
1: Oh, without it, the mind-body connect is just, it's huge, it's everything. And while we're unconsciously engaged in processes like that, we are victims of our own delusion. And when somebody like yourself points it out, if you're willing, it doesn't take very long to see things differently. And, of course, when you see things differently, everything changes with it.
2: That's right. Now, some people um, will run because you're going to uncover their story. And the girl that had the, the, the schizoid behavior uh, tried to enact crazy to reengage the father back into protecting her and say, taking care of her. Because he'd been taking care of her for a number of years and paying for everything, and she hadn't had any accountabilities.
1: And people so, can be addicted to their own narrative as well.
2: Exactly. Addicted to the narrative. So, so we actually uh, did an intervention and kind of broke her through it and changed her life. And she's not schizophrenic anymore.
1: Dr. DiMartini, you are absolutely amazing and your teachings are phenomenal. And I am so sad to say that we're fast approaching the end of the show. I honestly, Tempus Fugit, I do not know where that time has gone. Uh, before we come to a close, can I ask you to give me just a few words on what you think whole and one means to you? That's the title of this series of podcasts, these radio shows are all intended to help people to manage their self-talk, build a healthy relationship with anxiety and tell themselves that different story, change their narrative. So it's all about finding our own wholeness and connecting to the universal one. I wonder what does whole and one mean to you?
2: Well, you'd said it. When we're infatuated with somebody and we minimize ourselves, that's not us. When we resent somebody and exaggerate ourselves, that's not us we're too humble or too proud to admit what we see in them is inside us. And we have, you might say a deflective awareness, disowned parts. When we look across and whatever we see, we look within and find it and have reflective awareness instead of deflective awareness. And we realize there's nothing to change in them relative to us or us relative to them. And there's just grace, just appreciation and love for them. We are now authentic we're not in a superiority complex or an inferiority complex. We're in the state of maximum simplicity and oneness. And when we do, because we're in reflective awareness, whatever we judge around us is deflected, but anything we love around us is the oneness. And so we want to be loved for who we are, but we aren't who we are when we judge. We're only who we are when we love. Empedocles, the ancient Greek philosopher, sixth century said that there's love, love and strife. And love is when we see the order of the universe and we're grateful. Strife is when we judge the universe and thinking something needs to change, but there's a magnificence in the universe. And the second we recognize it and realize there's nothing to fix in ourselves or others, we're in a state of grace and human will matches what the theologians call divine will. And I think that's the oneness, all one not fractured, disintegrated. So every time we judge, we fractionate. And every time we love, we integrate. And that integration and oneness is where our power is. That's our authentic soul.
1: Amazing. I think think
2: your your statement is right on the money.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you on everybody's behalf, Dr. Martini. It has been absolutely life-changing, light-bearing, And certainly for myself, um, I will be continuing to follow your values-based program. I'll be continuing to reassess regularly as my world changes, as the conditions of my world change. I keep going back to the value determination process because I know as the conditions of my environment change, so might my perception change. And I encourage everybody to get over there, do your courses, um, do the Bounce Back program. It's absolutely phenomenal to realize that no matter what you go through in life, you can make it part of the betterment of you, the expansion of you, the awakening of you.
2: So true. Thank you you
1: so very much. It has been my absolute pleasure and my honor. Please stay in touch.
0: Thank you again for joining us for Hole in One. Please join your host, Sheila E. Hirine, for another edition of this amazing program next Wednesday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we meet again, remember no matter the question, love is the answer. You've got this.